First episode of the Pavilion on Air. My name is Phil Raskin. We're here today with our two hosts, Ryan Manikin, Shinika Shi, and our very special guest, Prince Charles Alexander. So many of you may know him from his work with artists such as Biggie, uh, Mary J. Blige, Usher, and Aretha Franklin, just to name a few. So thank you so so much for being here and joining us. And <laughs> looking back, we actually all met each other around the same time at the Berkeley College of Music. And uh, so many of us know you as a teacher from a class where I didn't get much sleep. I'm kind of trying to make up for that with the whole social distancing situation now. But enough about that. We're here today to find out a bit more about your musical career. So Rayhan, um, as you work with a lot of artists from a, let's say, more contemporary and commercial genre, why don't you take it from here? Awesome. So PC, my first question for you is genre specific. Recently we've seen a lot of artists take the hip-hop funk route together. Um, so I want to know, as an artist yourself, why did you get involved with the hip-hop and funk scene? Uh, for me, it was survival, wanting to, to continue to be in the business, wanting to stay in the business. And uh, I put out my first record in 1979. 1979 happens to be the year that Rapper's Delight came out. And when I put out my record... Uh, Rapper's Delight was an anomaly. It was this very bizarre thing, three guys talking on a record, and it sounded kind of odd to, even to me. I thought it was kind of a ridiculous record. Then later on, Christmas Rappin' came out, and then The Breaks by Curtis Blow came out in 1980. 1980, The Drum Machine came out, and I felt more lost and more lost as time was going on in terms of how to connect to the charts. And from 79 to 86, 87 was my, the peak years of me being a recording artist. So as the years were going on and hip-hop was growing and growing and my curiosity about it was growing and growing and my sales were flagging and flagging because funk was starting to lose its market share to hip-hop, I said to myself, I have to know what this is. I have to know what's going on. And one thing led to another and um, I felt like I couldn't figure it out you know, you can buy a drum machine, but did you buy the right drum machine? Uh, you can buy a synthesizer, but did you buy the right synthesizer? I felt like I couldn't really figure it out. What helped me was going to a school and studying audio engineering. From audio engineering, I got into studios and I started to see what other producers were doing. And uh, I started to work with other producers. And most of the work in the studios started to change from funk and rock and soul to hip hop. So by being in the studio, it naturally moved over and became a hip-hop clientele, just with me being there. And from there, I, I realized that there was a connection to funk, you know, in the samples and in the roots of hip-hop and soul. And I felt like I was home again, even though we weren't playing instruments, but there was still a, a, a similar sensibility with what was going on in the music, the backbeats, the bass lines, the vocal cadences, and, and it, it, it felt natural to me as a producer and an engineer. And I really think it came out of a, a necessity of wanting to stay in the business, because what were my other options? If I wasn't gonna be a funk artist, what was I gonna do, leave the business? So in order to stay in the business and to, to track 
black music specifically moving forward, black music kind of moved from funk and soul into hip hop. And uh, it was a simple choice if, if you had seen what I saw. That makes sense. Yeah. So we've been in your classes, PC, and um, so we, we've heard you tell stories about your um, musical background growing up. But for the audience um, that's tuning in, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what it was like growing up, like playing music for you? Um, did you ever play in bands? Mm -hmm. did you, uh, what sort of musical instruments did you play? Can you tell us a little bit about it? So uh, obviously I've practiced this story, but, you know, I'm going to tell you something really funny. I've been practicing this story since I was 15. So I knew I was going to be famous just because right. that's, how you, that's how you think if you're going to try to do this. So I was like, well, when I get famous, then one day I'm going to be on this podcast and somebody's going to ask me this question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I started playing clarinet when I was 11 in high school. I went to a six-year high school that started in the seventh grade, and I was 11 in the seventh grade. Uh, saw a sign that said, you know, clarinet or trumpet. I come home, I ask my mom, hey, there's a sign, clarinet or trumpet. She said, you're not bringing a trumpet in this house. So my, my uh, fate was sealed. So I began with the clarinet. By about the age of 13... I kind of morphed, had morphed through the B flat clarinet to the alto clarinet to the bass clarinet. And I was like, man, that saxophone looks really pretty interesting. So mom went out and got me an alto saxophone. I started playing alto saxophone probably months after I had started playing. A friend of mine said, are you interested in playing in a band? Now, at 13, this is 1971. In 1971, bands like the Ohio Players, the Commodores, Cool and the Gang, um, uh, um, um, Tower of Power, uh, Chicago, all of these horn bands existed. So I'm like, oh my gosh, an opportunity is here for me to be a saxophone player in a horn band type of a situation. So I joined this band, and I don't even remember the name of it. And then there was another band, and I think the third band I played in, the name of the band was called the Ice Cream Factory. And uh, that kind of continued on for two years, from 13 to 15. We were playing in clubs. We were playing in strip clubs. I was 13 years old, like behind a curtain, <laughs> you know. I couldn't see what was going on outside there. But you got to remember, in those days, DJ culture had not exploded yet. So if you owned a club, your music was either a jukebox or a live band. The jukebox, because you had to adhere to certain um, intellectual property considerations with ASCAP and register the songs that were in your jukebox. And the live band, in theory, was supposed to register their music also whenever we did a cover, but nobody did that. Um, so DJ culture was still new, didn't exist, so you had to have a band if you had a club. And I took advantage of that from the age of 13 to 15. At 15, I joined a bigger group in Boston called the Energetics. They were like a Jackson 5 group, and I was in the band. So there was a seven-piece band, two horns, and five singers. And we were kind of like the Jackson 5 of our neighborhood, you know, of Boston and eventually New England. We were going to Connecticut and, and uh, Maine and New Hampshire, and eventually we got to New York and Philadelphia and those types of things. So I thought my life was going to be, all right, I'll graduate from the energetics and get into a group like the Commodores, or maybe I'll create a group like the Commodores or Tower of Power, and I'm going to be like the horn guy. I'm going to play alto and tenor and piccolo and flute and whatever. I'm just going to be like, um, like uh, Lenny Pickett from Tower of Power. And something 
strange happened around the mid-70s. Uh, Lionel Richie, who was an alto player, started to sing only and stopped playing the horn. Cool and the Gang went out and got a, a vocalist. Uh, I think that was probably in the 80s, but you could see it coming. They went out and got a vocalist eventually. Um, um, the Ohio players put more focus on Sugarfoot playing the so. All of these horn bands, they started to put their horns down, and a lot of the horn players became keyboard players and background singers. So this is the mid-'70s, and I'm looking at this going, this is very interesting. Um, so my dream of being in a horn band is going to have to morph and change. So um, what I did was I started to look at other saxophone players, like Grover Washington and um, um, uh, you know Archie Shepp, and uh, Rasan Roland Kirk and said, okay, so I won't be in a horn band. I'll just be a marquee horn player. And I'll now have to learn jazz if I want to do that. So that began my pursuit of jazz. And then I ran into Charlie Parker and John Coltrane. And about the age of 17, I had to decide, well, what am I going to do with my life? Am I going to do music? And if I'm going to do music, let me go check out this place called Berkeley College of Music. And what am I going to want to do at Berkeley? I'm going to want to play horn and I'm going to want to make records. I went there. They had like a four-track player or an eight-track analog machine or something. I was like, boy, this place looks pretty rickety. I don't know if this is really what I want or what I want to do. And then I got accepted at Brandeis University. I went there and, and did liberal arts first year. I, I think I got a D in a subject, and I was like, whoa, because I was going back and forth playing locally in different bands, different no-name bands, and it affected my GPA. So I, I stopped clubbing for maybe two years, freshman year, um, sophomore year, junior year, I started a band on school, and we eventually played, we warmed up George Benson when he came to Boston and played at Brandeis University. By my senior year, I had started clubbing again, my GPA was back up, and this is about 1978 going into 79, I met a guy in Boston who could play a lot of instruments, um, could sing extremely well, and he knew about me because I was making a name for myself. I used like Sweet Charles was my name back then. Um, I had also thought about Charmin Charles and, and Brandy Alexander, and I'm like, okay, because Charles Alexander just sounded boring to me. So I was trying to figure out how to become uh, a marquee artist. And then I met this guy. His name was Maurice Starr. Maurice Starr eventually went on in life to produce New Edition and New Kids on the Block. When I met him, he was just an extremely accomplished musician, and he invited me to come and play keyboards in his band and I'm like well I I do know a little bit about keyboards but I don't really know how to play keyboards he said ah, it's no problem I got you <clears throat> he's like a Michael Jordan he could make anybody do great things I became a keyboard player in the band with Maurice and then one day Maurice said I'm putting a record out he put a record out it sounded just like Parliament Funkadelic it blew my mind I knew somebody that could make a competent recording I was like are you kidding me so I'm thinking, I got to have one of those too. I got to have one of those too. And I went to Maurice and made a deal. I had 100 bucks to my name. I made a deal where he produced two songs on some other guy. He produced two songs on me. I was going to pay the back end of it, and the other guy was going to pay the front end. 
Uh, he agreed to that. I was like, whoa, that's great. Oh, shoot, I don't have any money. So <laughs> I had to go and find the money from somewhere. So I did that. We put the record together. I did two sides. Um, I went and found a guy that put, that gave the money for me to get my song out of the studio. His name is Tony Rose. He became my manager for the next eight or nine years of my life. That record came out. It was called In the Streets. It was a hit by a group called Prince Charles and the City Beat Band. Um, it hit locally, then it went to New York, then from New York it went to England, it blew up in England. Think about this, a black guy in chains and leather with the name Prince Charles running around in England. I was huge before I ever stepped foot in England. I was, they were like, the, the newspapers were just going off, they were just bugging. So, you know, I was still that guy playing in local bands when I went on my first tour I put some musicians together, but this time I had transitioned from Boston to New York. I went to New York in 1981. I graduated from college in 79. By the way, that first record came out two weeks after I graduated from college. I knew what I wanted to do with my life since high school. But um, for my mom, I was like, I'll go get a degree. Got the degree. Two weeks after, boom, I'm out. I'm running around the world. And I think uh, in 83, I got my deal with Virgin Records. So I had had some small deals with Greyhound Records in Europe um, and um, uh, Solid Platinum Records in uh, America. And I think Maurice's label was Boston International Records. So I, I, I land in Europe. I'm a star. I'm blowing up. You know, big tours, tractor trailers, performing with people like Duran mm -hmm. um, Duran and Robert Palmer and all the while that I'm on stage, out of my periphery, <clears throat> I could see that this thing called hip hop was having lots and lots of success year after year. It was freaking me out a little bit. But at the same time, I'm like, well, I can handle this. This, I, I'll just continue in my path of being the great funk artist like a Jimi Hendrix you know, in rock. I'm gonna be the, the funk guy um, playing a wind synthesizer, which was my my unique concept. So I had graduated from saxophones and, and flute up to the wind synthesizer, and I was playing bass lines like Bernie Worrell from Funkadelic Bass Lines on my wind synthesizer, and you know acid funk like guitar sounding solos with yeah. fuzz pedals and stuff with my Lyricon, uh, because the name of the wind synthesizer was the Lyricon. And I was like, okay, I think I can make this work. I think I can make this work. I think I can, it's, I think I can. But it's at the same time, one. I'm like, but whoa, what's going on over there? Yeah. And then in 1985, Walk This Way came out. Walk This Way blew such a big hole in funk commerce that literally between 85 and 86, every funk artist lost their deal. Now, my deal was with a British label, so I had a two-year grace. Two years of like, okay, I didn't lose my deal this week. I didn't lose my deal this week, you know, for two years this is going on. And I'm like, but I'm going to lose my deal any minute. So between 85 and 87, I, I, would, I remember being at Madison Square Garden looking out at 30,000 people saying to myself, I've got to figure something out. This is not going to work too much longer. And that's when I made my decision to try to figure out another way. 
And that other way happened in a newspaper mm -hmm. article where I saw somebody sitting behind an engineering console. And I said, hmm, if I learn engineering, my production will get better. Plus, I'll learn all this new stuff. So I made a commitment to get off the stage, go oh. study this audio engineering thing. I did it. I got into a studio that had an SSL upstairs, right. a Neve downstairs. Um, and basically, that happened in 86. Uh, Word Up by Cameo was the last funk album that was invested in by major labels. And then I was off Virgin by 87. And I was rolling with my engineering career by 87. And it's really funny. I still think I'm that kid that plays saxophone. But the truth is, I'm a producer and an engineer. Wow, that is quite the trajectory. And practice, practice your stories. I've been working on that one since I was 15. <laughs> it's a good one. It's a good one. That is really inspiring. So yeah. s focusing on the different roles you've had since you were 15 until now, you've been a player, an engineer, a producer, a student. What would you say is your most common method of listening to music? You mean what medium do I listen to? Yeah. What medium, whether it's a streaming service or you still use an iPod or you still buy music from iTunes, whatever it may be. If I want to be critical, uh, I, need, I feel like I need to sit in front of NS10s, a pair of NS10s in a studio environment. If I don't need to be critical, if I'm just listening to music, like right now I'm teaching uh, you know, all my classes online and I'm listening through EarPods so I can hear the stereo image well because our Macs have three speakers on them. They have a left speaker, a right speaker, and a subwoofer. So I don't know if you've ever gone into your Mac and tried to pan it to the left. You'll hear everything on the left. But if you pan it to the right, you don't hear a right image. You hear a centered image. That's because the subwoofer can't go off. So I can't do critical listening with just my Mac. Um, I need to go under the, the, the earbuds. And in order for me to hear it on earbuds, well, I have to kind of have to press the earbuds in in order to hear low frequency response. So I say that right. to say that my normal listening would be in a studio my, and my normal critical listening would be in a studio in front of a pair of NS10s. Um, if I'm not in that situation, a pair of headphones is better. I actually feel that Apple headphones have a pretty good image. I think the Beats are a little bit overhyped and give me too much information uh, on the low end of the spectrum. But I like the Apple AirPods. I like the Apple, um, these little plug-in mics, uh, plug-in headphones. I like both of them. And, I, and I've compared them to some other um, AirPods, and like I said, Apple is pretty good. Um, and other than that, what I try to do is turn my critical brain off and use my musical brain and listen to a song for what a song is. And I think right. the more I learned about technology, the easier it was for me to listen to songs as songs and to not have to constantly dissect the technology. So dissecting the arrangement is fun for me. Dissecting the technology is also fun for me. It depends on my listening environment, which one of those tasks I will do. So when I'm in front of NS10s, I'm always doing critical listening. But if I go to the side of an NS10, or if I'm under earbuds, or if I'm listening through a, a, a Mac, it's less about critical listening and more about musical listening and listening to the arrangement. That's interesting to know. Yeah, it's cool that you're able to switch it on and off because I find that it's pretty hard for yeah. me like now to listen to a song for what it is rather than something analytical. Yeah. Um, 
But speaking of music, I mean, we all know you've worked with so many talented artists and that you've been a producer, mixer, and engineer on so many different projects throughout your career. I was wondering if there was a particular project that was very memorable for you in your career. Um, and if yes, was it a funny one or what in particular about that project made it stand out to you? So there's two projects. One is the group I Am from France. Their method, their, and you, uh, most of the people that have taken classes with me know that I talk about process. You know, what is the process of songwriting? What is the process of uh, organizing your tracks? What is the process of mixing? A process, process, process. It's what we sell. So the group called I Am, um, I worked with in 1997, and we won a, a French equivalent of a Grammy together. And it was really, really great. I don't really have any crazy or funny stories because they are so meticulous and, and so clean, so squeaky clean and so directed that there was no weird or wild stuff that happened with them. But it is, I think, my relationship with them is one of my proudest relationships and one of my longest relationships. And just recently we did uh, three gold uh, albums back to back in uh, 2019, 2017, and 2016. But the funny and weird and quirky stuff happened when I was at Bad Boy. And I'll always love my time with Notorious B.I.G. and another group called Jodeci. So Jodeci came first. And KC and Jodeci was the singer, but he was just, they were all wild. They were just all wild. They did crazy <laughs> stuff in the studios. A lot of it I can't talk about, but just let your imagination run with people and girls and alcohol and weed and just all of this kind of crazy stuff. Um, it was fun. It was interesting. And I think that, uh, you know, you are who you are. And then you get into certain situations, and in order to make the situation work to the best of its advantage, this is a little bit to do with engineer etiquette. Um, I became their fifth member. So after a while, I started to look like them. I was wearing the same clothes, the same boots. It's like, you know, one of those movies where they say, if you're going to hang out with me, here, go to the, go to the, uh, you know, go to the clothes store. So yeah. it was kind of fun, and I really liked that kind of transformation that I went through with that group. But one of my fun stories with Biggie is... Uh, the introduction to Ready to Die. And uh, Ready to Die, we were trying to do a chronicle of his life, and there was a scene that we were doing uh, in the audio world. There was no video. We were doing an audio scene where his father and his mother were having an interaction, and his father was extremely angry at his mom. So we had a guy go into the booth and play the, the role of the father. And I don't remember who he was. He was pretty blasé. Oh, Walona, what are you doing with our boy? Is he going to have to go? And I was like, yo, Puff, what, what's up with that? Why, why are you wasting that time sending somebody in the booth that doesn't know how to do this? So we sent a second guy in. I forget who the second guy was. And once again, he was kind of lackluster. He didn't make me laugh because, I mean, good interludes should make you laugh. You know, Eminem's interludes, Dr. Dre's interludes, you know. They kind of like, even um, uh, Kendrick's interludes, they, they make you laugh a little bit. So I was like, yo, Puff, I got stuff to do. You got me sitting in here pushing record on a bunch of people that, that have no idea how to act. Let me go in there. Let me show you what angry black man sounds like. 
<laughs> and they was like, well, yeah, go in. So I, I don't know, I probably told Puffy, just hit this button and it'll go into red and I'll figure out where to go. So I went in there and there was a, a young lady in there who was gonna be the mom and, and you know the dad was reacting off of her. So when we went into red and our scene came, I launched into it, God damn it, and I was like going, I was like on 11, and the young lady was like, oh my God, what is going on? Is he getting ready to hit me? <laughs> the scene, it sounds as crazy in, like in real life, it, what was happening in real life was as crazy as it sounds on the record. So if you listen to the Ready to wow. Die intro, and you hear the father screaming, that's me. Mm-hmm. And then the other one I did was the the jail guy at the end of it because they wanted somebody that sounded like he was uh, had an education going yeah yeah you'll be back you know um, so it, th- those that was my probably my most fun memory and I knew at the time that I was engineering all this notorious B.I.G. and Mary J. Blige and Faith Evans stuff I knew at the time that. This was a moment for me to seal my voice in history. I knew it. And unfortunately, I'm cursing like a sailor, but, you know, hey, you take what you can get. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I got to go back and listen to those songs again. <laughs> I was going to say, we definitely have to take a listen to that. Yeah, yeah in is, class. <laughs> it is hilarious. It is hilarious. That's awesome. So going off of that experience, what's the angriest experience you've genuinely had while working in the industry? That's an interesting question. And I think it's a great question that speaks to the moral fiber of anybody that wants to be a producer, engineer, artist, uh, communing with people uh, when you're not in a social distancing world. And I was in Atlanta uh, with a producer and he had a junior producer, so he was the you know the, the the global producer of the whole project, and he had another guy that was playing keyboards and working on the track. And a young lady came in, who was uh, probably working on some top line, or or maybe we were just she was either working on top line, or we were kind of auditioning her to see what her voice voice sounded like, so that she could do some top line for us. And um, her hand had obviously been burned in a fire. It had been mangled pretty badly. And uh, you know she wasn't really ashamed of it, so you could really see the burn going all the way down her arm and, and her hand. And um, everyone was polite. While we were in the session, she left the session, and I think the senior producer said, so what did you think about her to me and to the junior guy? The junior guy starts to say all of this politically incorrect stuff about her being, you know, <coughs> excuse me, a burnt hand B-I-T-C-H. And the first time he said it, I was like, I don't get that. Then the second time he said it, I was like, okay, he's provoking something here. By the time he said it the third time, I was like, yo, homie, shut up. Like, what is your problem? Where is your humanity? And instead of listening to me, he went in on me. And then we started, like, literally getting ready to go to town. 
And then he's talking about, well, I'm, I'll pull my gun out and I'll end it right here. And, I, and this thing really, really escalated. We didn't lay hands on each other, but we were supposed to be in that project for two weeks. This was about day five. I left the studio. I didn't continue that session that day. I went to my room. I called the senior producer up. And I said, and the senior producer is 10, 11, 12 years younger than me. The junior producer is probably 10, 11, 12, 13 years younger than me, right? I called the senior producer up because it's his gig and I'm trying to be professional here. I said, you condone that? You condone that language and that perspective in your environment? And he was hemming and hawing. I said, look, it's either me or him in that room. You can't have us both. And he was like, well, I got to do this. I got to just show up, just show up, just show up. I was like, look, if he's going to do the tracks, I'm not going to be the engineer. I am not going to be the engineer. And you're going to have to pay for me being down here for the next nine days. He said that, he hemmed and hard. So needless to say, I had a nine-day vacation at the, um, you know, at the cost of the, of the senior producer. And I never went back and, and saw that guy again. I think he eventually went on to produce a couple of tracks here or there. But, uh, you know, didn't really become or blow up or become a Teddy Riley or anything like that. And uh, that was probably the angriest that I've ever been in a session. And I've actually had a fight in a session. But I wasn't really angry when I had to fight. I was just tired. <laughs> I was tired and somebody got on my nerves. That one, I was angry. No, it totally makes sense. That's that's completely. I would not even think like that. That could happen, honestly. I, in a it, it, it blew me away. But, I was like, "Are yeah, you kidding yeah. me?" Oh, and I didn't tell you the other part. I have a cousin who was in a fire who's burnt over seventy part seventy percent of her entire body. Wow. So, yeah. and I had I wasn't even thinking about that. I was just reacting to his insensitivity, and then I started thinking about my cousin, and like you know. How how dare you be so insensitive? It was ridiculous. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, I mean, like, that was clearly a very uh, negative experience. But um, speaking about, like, collaborations with different artists, like, how important was it for you to have a personal connection with the artists you worked with? Or was it more about, like, um, their talent and what they could bring to the table? Uh, I think everybody that got into the recording studio with me at a certain point had talent. So the idea that somebody is talented is not really the, the major consideration. I've seen people that I thought were, were talentless, but they're pretty successful. Even now, you, some of them are, are famous and you know them. And I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe that person is who they are <laughs> because they, they didn't have anything to offer. Um, but, yeah, being able to be on that same page and vibe, I think, is really important. And I, I always think of um, that. Well, what I was telling you about Jodeci, you know, I started wearing the same kind of jeans as them, the same boots as them and, you know, hoodies and all that kind of stuff because I, I wanted to bond with them because we were doing like long projects, like month long projects. Um, and it was clear to me early in my career that because of the nature of the business, because of the nature of race relations in America, that 
you know, I could fight my way into the rock and roll world. I could, you know, be the anomaly and really make something happen and sit in the room with the Ramones. But I don't know if the Ramones would have been comfortable with me in the room if, if I didn't have long hair and a ripped up jacket. So I kind of thought of myself as an answer uh, on the technical side for hip hop artists and funk artists and jazz artists and m mostly black music artists to, to for them to have a technical ear but also somebody sensitive to the culture because there are a lot of engineers who are great engineers and they can work with the music but they're not from your culture and so it doesn't mean it doesn't make the music any better or any worse, but I think it, it, it changes the dynamic of how the artist interacts with their music when there is a, a, a like messenger working with the technology. So I exploited that to my advantage. And I've had students from other countries come up to me and say, should I work with my, you know, with, with my language or should I do this other thing? And I'm like, you know, ex exploit your strengths. Go with your strength. If, if if, if you can perceive a lane that's opening up in America in a, a certain language or a, a certain cultural style and you represent that language and that cultural style, try to become the biggest and the best in that cultural style. And then America will eventually, when they look for who's the biggest and the best in that style, they'll be looking at you. And that was my philosophy. And... Um, so in order for that to work for me, I did have to kind of really blend and get down there and understand the language and the slang of uh, my clients. Uh, and there, it's funny because there came a point where I, once, once I passed 40 and was into my 40s, uh, I had to ask more and more questions about what the slang was. It wasn't like it was just coming natural to me anymore. And so that developed in me a curiosity and, and an inquisitiveness uh, from generation to generation about um, not thinking that I know, but continuing to be interested in what's going on from generation to generation. That's really, really cool. And I think that's more so even more important in the industry now. Um, so going off of that, if you could work with one artist and producer and really connect with them on a musical and personal level from the charts right now, who would it be and why? Uh... Always Rihanna. <laughs> she's, my, she's my favorite artist. And I have no idea why, because I don't think she's a great singer. <laughs> but I think she's just got great vibe. Her, her vibe is insane. Um, and then the other one is Bruno Mars, because Bruno Mars rem reminds me most of what I grew up with. I grew up with that, that yeah. 70s, 80s feel. Mm -hmm. Everybody could sing. Everybody could play every instrument, you know. Um, I, I feel like if I was in a room with Bruno, we probably wouldn't even have to talk. He would just like nod and I'd be like, yeah, I know what you need. But it, it would just, it would just flow because he's on the same page. He's on the same page as, as every great musician that I've ever known. Yeah. So Bruno definitely. And then Rihanna, just because if you, it, you know, if this music thing is about vibe or culture, just like Miles Davis was about uh, about vibe. Mm -hmm. If this music thing is about vibe, I don't know who, I don't know who's hipper than Rihanna. I just don't. I just don't see it. True. No, she definitely has it. She yeah. definitely yeah, has yeah. it. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, Drake is kind of sort of there, but Drake is kind of he's he's hip by default because he doesn't even try to be hip. He just is hip. But Rihanna, it's like it's it's everywhere. Her look, her feel, her attitude, everything is vibe. And Drake and Drake is a monster. But I don't know if if me working with Drake would work out because he got a big ego and I got a big ego. And I don't, I don't I don't know if that would work out too well. And I'm a musician, so I think at being a musician, I could. I could vibe with Bruno because mm. I know Bruno's got a big ego too. But I think I could vibe with with Bruno. Drake, it's like I don't care about that music stuff. I'm just trying to make hits, and you know he says that one time too many, and it would kind of get on my nerves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're really for looking sure. for musicianship and being able to connect with musicians as well. You know, at this age, I I I think I have to be honest with myself and say that that works a little bit better for me. It's not that I can't be in the room with Migos or somebody like that. I, I, mm -hmm. I get where they're coming from and that works for me. I, I, I can do that, but it doesn't thrill me. Um, mm -hmm. Every once in a while, a song will come by that'll thrill me, but there's a more consistent thrill with music. Um, but I gotta be honest also, I do this to put food on the table and the bigger the check is, that's kind of thrilling also. So if you're working with Migos and you get like an $80,000 check, that's kind of thrilling. And if I'm working with a great musician and I'm getting like a, a, a $5,000 check, mm -hmm. I'm kind of like, well, damn, I could have just stayed home with the kids. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so be, be careful in life for, for thinking that you are only one thing. We are all multiplicities of 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 beings we are the the breadwinner we are the art artist we are the compromiser we are all of those things and there's nothing wrong with being all of those things because each one of them is a singular moment in time mm -hmm. yeah definitely i think it's super important to be like flexible with that and so you can like interact with different artists and work with different artists and like not be cooped up into like one category yeah and definitely to also be able to identify that. I feel like a lot of upcoming producers and artists, especially from our generation, seem to overlook the fact that they play a lot of different roles in the industry. You know, right, it's like, right, I'm right. only a producer, I'm only the engineer, and like that's what I'm going after in life. Yeah, but I guess my background uh, planted in me a desire to want to do a lot of things because mm -hmm. I had, I mean, as a saxophone player, once the saxophone started to disappear in bands, you had to figure something else out. So mm -hmm. I've got that figure it something else out thing going on. And then my genre took a hit. So I had to figure something else out. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of just because of the way I was brought up, there was always, uh, okay, door A is shutting. Let's see what's behind door B, you know, and that has become my reality um, just because I wanted to survive in the music industry. It's really inspiring. Yeah. So talking more about producers, what are some common mistakes you see upcoming producers making in your interactions with them? I mean, a simple one, I don't really think about it too much. A simple one is uh, the beat maker that makes the beat too loud and doesn't put focus on the vocals. That's a, that's a real common one. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like I see it less and less, but I can tell when I'm hearing it. Um, that's probably the biggest one. And then the other one is uh, not listening to competitive music, not not listening to or being able to absorb the lessons 
from competitive music that's currently in the marketplace that's doing the job that you want to do. What is the job of producing a piece of music? To connect with a lot of people. Who's connecting with a lot of people? The music that's on the charts. And what a lot of young producers do is, I'm not going to listen to that music that's on the charts. And I'm like, oh my God, that's, oh, come on, guys. That's like being a football player and saying, you know, or being a quarterback in football and saying, I'm not going to watch Tom Brady. That's like being a basketball player and saying, I'm not going to watch LeBron James. That just doesn't make any sense that our industry, our musical creativity seems to be one of the few things that one can do where people feel like they're going to make it up <laughs> out of nowhere without referring to the successful, creative people that have gone before them. So that really irks me um, because, and I'll tell you why it irks me. It irks me because if you have no understanding of form, then anything that you give me could be perceived as good form. But once we put limitations on form, then you start to see that people do not know the level of their kick drum. They do not know the level of the vocal. They do not know which reverb to choose to make this an interesting composition. And then that's when things go off the rail for me, for young producers. And where is that information at? That information is in the Hot 100. It's, it's already in the, the, the Serb and Ghania mixes and the Manny American mixes and the Tony Maserati mixes of Justin Bieber and uh, Rihanna and Drake and so forth and so on. That information is already there. So how can you create music without any reference point? No, I, I mean, I totally feel that. Yeah, I, I think I've uh, interacted with a lot of people who... Um just don't really want to listen to the hot 100 songs just out of not fear but like some sort of like it's not hatred but i don't know like they just don't want to listen to it because they don't maybe like the music there yeah. you know like well yeah i can and, get that i, you I don't know, you know um, i'm not saying that i like it either but, yeah, yeah, yeah but hey winning is but, winning I mean, is winning yeah it's like an opportunity to learn. So yeah. I feel like people should, you know, accept that Foot, for what it football is. Football fans hate the New England Patriots. Yeah, that's true. But if you don't pay attention to what Tom Brady's doing, three-second drop back, two, two-and-a-half to three-second drop back, if your quarterback is dropping back for six seconds, you're going to lose. So <laughs> you, you yeah, need to yeah. go and study those tapes and study the film, and that's the same analogy that I use for what we do. If you're not going to yeah, look yeah. at Rihanna's vocal level, if you're not going to look at the, the, the reverb that uh, Lady Gaga has chosen, if you're not going to look at the, the stutter editing in, a, in this Nicki Minaj song, if you're not going to look at those things, then what language are you actually speaking? Yeah. No, I totally agree. So on the topic of, of advice, um, as songs blow up, artists are suddenly finding themselves under large amounts of attention. And this has to do with like how large of a reach social media has. So you've been in the music industry for a long time and have interacted with many famous artists. What advice do you have for these new artists um, who are dealing with the industry fame and how do you suggest to uh, not lose themselves in the glamorous aspect of it all? That's a great question. And the answer to that is fall in love with the process, not, not the result. And what that means is don't fall in love with the fact that you have a Grammy or that you won a Grammy or that you got a platinum record or that you just did you know, two billion streams. 
fall in love with the process of uh, communicating the human condition to human beings uh, and being prolific at it. So what does that mean in process? That means it takes me a, a month to make a song. Okay, so can we, can we get that faster? Can we do it in three weeks? And then once you do it in three weeks, can we get it down to two? Can we get it down to one week? Can we get it down to three days? Like falling in love with that is is more uh, it, it's it's more connected to who you are as a human being than whether you are doing two billion streams because two billion streams is not going to happen every day. That's going to happen one day, right? And it's three hundred sixty five days in a year, and hopefully you'll live to be eighty years old. So this one day that you got to two billion streams means nothing. It's just a drop in your life. Your process is the thing that can help to define you as a human being because you can take the process of music and then go into into food. You can actually like prepare a meal using that same process. You can um, drive using that same process. You can, the, the process is what, is what people sh should connect to if they don't wanna lose their minds. And I say lose their minds because a lot of people get famous, get money, and they do lose their minds. They, are demanding things of people who are just regular human beings. It's like, you didn't make up my bed right in this hotel. You know, I, she should be fired. It's like, come on, dude. Like, you know, this person might have had a rough day. Do you know both sides of this situation? So for me, tying to process, getting the timing down, getting the productivity up are things that I think producers, artists should fall in love with. And then there are other things to fall in love with. Uh, maybe you want to get your revenue up. So if you want to get your revenue up, you can't wish it up. You've got to actually do homework. You've got to know, well, where's your revenue coming from? Is it coming from live performances? Is it coming from recorded performances? If it's coming from live performances, which are the venues that I can perform in across this nation and across the world? Uh, what What is the seating capacity of my act or my brand? Am I a uh, hundred? seat brand, a 1,000 seat brand, a 10,000 seat brand, am I a 30,000 seat brand knowing this? Okay, so how many venues across America have 2,500 seating capacity? You know there's actually not that many. There's probably maybe like one or two in every state that can do 2,500 well that's that's connected with, the, with the, all the big promoters. And then when you go up to 10,000 or 20,000, you know, well, I said one and two per state. That's probably not true. There's maybe like one or two per city. And then when you get to 10,000, 20,000, then there starts to be like, you know, only a couple per state. And from looking at our industry and understanding the process of how to generate revenue and knowing that that's where your revenue comes from, you can design success for your brand because you know who to contact. The more you study it, the more you start to know the names, the more you make phone calls to those names, the more you, they get, you reject you at first, they reject you at first, they reject you at first, and they go, oh, you're the person that's been calling me? Yeah, so what do you have? What do you wanna do? Next thing you know, you're on a stage. You're actually doing the thing that you thought. But it'll never happen if you don't know what it is that you're trying to do in terms of live, I'm gonna do all these performances. In terms of recording, I'm gonna do this type of distribution. The more you study about what of, of your method, of your process, the more you study about it, the more it should lead you to the core and the root of how to generate revenue. 
And then once you're there, then become good at that also. Don't just become good at your instruments and good at your ability to produce, but then become good at your financial health also. How to, how to keep doing this year after year after year after year after year. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. I, I, I do think that like some artists, you know, get lost in their success and like they don't have a clear goal or plan anymore. So, I mean, that's that's really great advice. That is true. So talking about success and continuing on in the industry, a lot of the big names that you've worked with specifically decided to stay on in the industry as active producers or artists or engineers. What made you take the route towards music education? <laughs> Well, I've got that survival thing, you know, which which kicked in, you know, uh, by moving from the saxophone to the wind synthesizer, and then moving from funk to hip hop, and moving from being on stage to being um, a, a producer engineer. So that's just a part of my my DNA. When I see that something is running its course, I'm looking for the extension to that course. So I, I, I look at music like a sports analogy. And I was once a player. And what do players in sports do when they're no longer on the court? They coach. That's the way to stay close to the game. So I looked at our industry and said, well, where do you coach in our industry? Well, one way to coach is to be a manager. You know, I've been a manager of a few artists. It's like being married. It's... <laughs> It's not, it's really not cool. I, I don't like managing artists. You get that, that late night call and they're drunk and stuff, or, you, or maybe you're drunk and you make the late night call. Either way, it's a pain. So that wasn't working out. Uh, the other way is to kind of absorb yourself into the industry as uh, an A&R person or CEO of your own label. But once again, you're tied to these quirky artists they have all this kind of stuff, and you got to take insurance policies out on them because they might shoot somebody in the leg and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, my, my life is just not that complicated. I don't need all of that in my life. So I kept looking and looking and looking for a way out. And the funny thing is, in 2004, I shut my studio down. And uh, I had had a studio in the middle of Manhattan for 10 years. It was in Quad. It was in um, what's now called Germano Recording. It was in the cutting room. Um, I had been in a qu quite a few places, sort of the, the same type of thing that Michael Brower does. I was doing that same kind of thing. And uh, mm -hmm. once I shut it down, I was still getting calls from Puffy to come and work. And I was like, no, nah, I got something to do. For two years, I didn't have anything to do. I was shooting pool. And that's one of my hobbies. I'm really, really good at it. I suggest to all musicians that they get a hobby because before pool, music was everything to me. It was my hobby, my life, my love. It was everything. And that's a little bit too much. There's a little bit of a mania there. You know, it's the Prince, it was everything for him. Michael, it was everything for him. Um, the ability to get away from music and be a real human being starts to, to escape you when you become extremely successful. Pool helped save me and it helped me to understand education. Because as I was learning pool, I realized that I couldn't execute the way my teacher executed. And I said, okay, so he's gonna show me and then next week I'll be just as good as him. Ha ha ha, very funny. 
It took years. So when I teach you guys, you guys need to be thankful that I've shot pool. Because <laughs> when I teach you, I know that I'm explaining something to you that's effortless for me. But you still need time to process it. And when I'm in my faculty meetings, um, I use that to educate the rest of the faculty about the, the processing time that students need in order to bring themselves up to speed. So as I looked around to, to wrap that question up, I felt like coaching was the way and where do you coach, how do you coach? You coach at, you know, the pros, coaching the pros is like being a manager, coaching college is like, well, hey, Berkeley College of Music, Frost College, USC, you know, Fordham has an audio program, LIU has an audio program. I started looking at these places. So from, from 2004 to 2006, I started sending out my uh, resume. NYU bid in 2005, I started there. Really funny, I started as an adjunct. I didn't know what an adjunct was. I thought I had a job. So I started in September. They told me in November that I wasn't gonna be coming back in January. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. I thought I had a job. <laughs> I did not know, because I had been an independent contractor all my life, I didn't know that adjunct instructors only work semester by semester. So I found out the hard way. And fortunately, in 2006, Carl Beatty at uh, Berkeley moved from MP&E up into the uh, academic affairs and offered me uh, to come in and interview for that slot. I went and interviewed for that slot, and one thing led to another, and I've been at Berkeley now for 14 years. And uh, wow. I've created a lot of interesting curriculum that you guys have probably taken in the commercial record production field. I think it was the maybe a missing stripe in MP&E, and um, mm -hmm. we just recently created a course called MP460, Advanced Commercial Record Production, which is on fire. Literally, every week that I hear the projects in the 460, I'm like, this is what I'm talking about. This is what Berkeley's supposed to sound like. I'm hearing hip hop, I'm hearing pop, I'm hearing, you know, just the, the swelling reverbs and like, it sounds, I, I feel at home in 460. And I'm, I'm glad that the course exists because I was, I, I was, I was kind of angry coming out of some of the um, MP&E uh, CD meetings. I was angry at um, the lack of competitive spirit from the compositions I was hearing. It was making me really angry. Like, how can you spend all this money, come to this place, and not feel like you're gonna take over the world? It didn't, it wasn't working for me. I feel like I'm hearing that in 460. And, and, I, and I love, I love the, the 460 students in the class. Wow, okay, 460 is definitely gonna be on the list. Yeah, So yeah. that's where the next Notorious B.I.G. is gonna come from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. So talking about the future of music uh, and your career, throughout your career, you've seen different iterations of music. You've seen it grow and develop. How do you specifically adjust to the shift of modern music? The first thing you have to do is be willing to listen to something that sounds awkward and odd and wrong and distasteful. That's the first thing. So you got to listen to XXX Tentacion. You got to listen to Takashi 69 you got to listen to uh, Blueface. You got to listen to 
Lizzo. I mean, Lizzo sounded a little bit quirky when she came out. And now she's pop. You got to listen to. Uh, I remember when the weekend was was this oddity. First, the first thing you have to do is listen. Like there's this guy running around now who's pitching his voice up an octave. He's got these raps. Everything sounds like this. And I'm like, yo, that's stupid. Like not good, stupid. Like dumb, stupid. But if it if it wins, I'm gonna have to explain it to you, and I'm gonna have to teach it to you, and be like, yo, your your track is not hot unless you got a, a vocal that's tuned up an octave. I hesitate to say that something is bad, and I know that many of you have been in my classes, and I I don't like to use the word this is good, this is not good. I don't like I don't I I prefer to say this connects well with audiences and this doesn't connect well with audiences. That's my preference. Because I I thought that Rapper's Delight sucked, you know? I thought Rapper's Delight was a stupid record. And it's an iconic record now. So, it's not that I was wrong. I think it is a stupid record. But it resonated with humanity. Now, what does that say about humanity? I'm not going to go there. But, <laughs> but the fact that it resonates and connects is important to me because I don't make music for myself. I make music for the world. I make music so that people can enjoy it. Um, so as we move forward, I don't know what anything is going to sound like. That would be great to know. Like I heard some music like, like a year or two ago where the kick drums were going. I was like, whoa, that's that's kind of dope. I could see how we're going to have a whole slew of music that does that moving forward. Dead. It died. I don't know what happened to it. Grime. Grime was incredible 15 years ago. I was like, oh, man, the way that they're rhyming. Oh, the rhyme schemes are incredible. That's going to blow up in America. Didn't blow up in America. So those of us that are trying to create this new thing out of nowhere uh, are up against a lot because even people that know how to do the thing that, that gets accepted well are asking themselves the same question. Where do we go from here? And they have better distribution than you and better access than you. And they experiment. And they are the ones on the cutting edge of seeing whether those experiments can work or not. Your job is to become one of them. So that when you experiment and you try to push us forward, your experiments will then become a normative thing. So like I said, I don't know what it is. But I know that who, what it will become is going to be led by people that know how to connect well. And more often than not, that's going to be people that already know how to make records that everybody else is listening to. It's not going to, in other words, I don't think that an underground movement comes from the underground, I think it comes from the underground through the people who are already successful. Once Drake goes and grabs that, that guy in New Orleans that's, that nobody knows, but he touches that guy and pulls him up, and that underground thing comes through that guy, through Drake, that's how we get the new thing. It's not really that different than 
uh, Miles Davis saying, hey, Herbie Hancock, you're going to be the next keyboard player. Hey, Mike Stern, you're going to be the next guitar player. So the people who are already successful will be the ones that will help us to pull the new things forward from the 16, 17, 18-year-old people that are just plunking around in their DAWs. Yeah, I think that's a actually a great segue into our next question, um, because you know we know you've had a very long career in music, and so you've like heard um, just adjustments in the culture and in genres. Like, how do you think music will develop in terms of genre and culture going onwards? Like, will it, you know? look back and pull from history or you know will it be something completely different do you have any thoughts so music is always pulling from history as it moves forward i i have this funny conversation periodically with faculty where they keep saying things like you know uh there's no good music being made now there there's not that iconic that that thing that'll be played 30 years from now that you'll be like oh remember what 2020 what we were doing and I'm looking at them like, are you crazy? Of course that music is being made. Yeah, 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 but I don't hear it. I'm like, yes, you do. You know, did, did you listen to, to Drake's um, uh, Kiki, Do You Love Me, da, 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 whatever that record is called? I mean, did you listen to The Weeknd's um, um, I, I Can't Feel My Face When I'm With You? Like, those records, 20 years from now, are going to be played, and your generation is going to be like, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I remember that. So anybody that thinks that that's not going to happen, that these records are not as viable as Earth, Wind & Fire's September or Stevie Wonder's, you know, Didn't She Love Me or all that kind of stuff, they don't really understand how music moves. And I'll give you a good example. Um, from the 1920s, there was a record called Putting on the Ritz. I only know it because somebody in the 1980s redid it. If the guy in the 1980s didn't redo it, I would never know that Putting on the Ritz existed, and it was a number one out-of-the-box smash. But I would have never known that, right? So some of the records that Drake and, and the, the artists that sample, they're using samples from 60s and 70s and 80s records. And 20 years from now, people are going to be taking the iconic moments of the 2020s that they listen to and repurposing them for 2040. And anybody that doesn't see the continuum that way is lying to you. Or they just never really thought about it contextually. They just never really thought about how music continues to morph and evolve. And, and I, you know, I'm a student of forensics also, language, and how we get slang and how language moves forward, so forth and so on. And, and very much that's the same thing too. Like when I hear people go, um, he pleaded guilty. I'm like, wait a minute. When I was a kid, we used to say he pled guilty. When did pleaded become the American way and pled become the British way? I have no idea. Because when I was a kid, it was he pled guilty. And every time I hear the journalists go, he pleaded guilty, I'm like, they are imposing a new norm. And that continues to happen every generation, musically, the context of language, the context of fashion, so forth and so on. So the better thing to do if you are really an innovator is to at least understand that first and then go about the process of innovation. Very interesting. 
So talking about innovation and moving forward and keeping up with these new norms, where do you think and how specifically do you think will music develop in terms of technology? MIDI version 1.0 was so good, it's lasted from 1983 till now. So what is that, 17 plus 10, so that's 37 years. MIDI version 2.0 is coming out with increased um, fine-tune increments. Um, we've explored the sonic spectrum, so we've gone from acoustic instruments to electric instruments to uh, digitally manipulated instruments. Um, you know, the funny thing is that all this hand gesture stuff where, where you kind of like the movie Minority Report, where you've got these little... Uh, you know, sensors on your fingers. We were doing that stuff in the 70s and 80s. I, I know this generation doesn't believe it, but we had all this touch your body with contact stuff going on. It just didn't get really that popular. And we had quad back in the day, four speakers. It just didn't get that popular because humans have certain limitations. We've only got two ears. I don't have a 10.1 ears, <laughs> you know? So... There is definitely going to be more of a, of a striving to create immersive environments, environments where I feel like I'm in reality, but I'm, also, but I'm actually in something artificial. So if there's anything that our industry is trying to do as we move forward, I would say it would be the immersive experience. Um... I kind of want to poo-poo it a little bit, but I can't because I'm a child of 2020 right now and a child of 2060, 2070, 2080 is going to be relating to audio in a different way possibly than, than we're relating to audio now in 2020. Now I want you to remember one thing. As much as technology will move forward and advance, and as much as we're trying to create immersive experiences, and as much as we've got to develop devices that can help us with the immersive experience, like helmets and whatever body packs that can, you know, like generate bass sounds and the bass can go through us or whatever, as much as we're moving into that, you got to remember that we landed on the moon in 1969. And most of the astronauts thought that we would have colonized the moon by now and that we would have been on to Mars and beyond by now. So that is my analogy to technology might move forward, but it might stagnate. And a lot of that has to do with things that are outside of the technologist's control, like things like the coronavirus, things like uh, legislation, you know, government legislation. There are, uh, there are things that can hamper technology even in, with, oh, or the, the, the public itself might just say, I only have two years. This immersive thing is not working for me. I'm not going to spend $14,000 to wear a bodysuit walking around in my house while I'm cooking hamburgers. I'm just not going to do it. And then that would stop technology dead in its tracks. So as much as we're dreaming the dream, we also have to look at, reality and make sure that the, that the dream uh, fits who we are as human beings and fits the human lifestyle and, and integrates well into the human lifestyle. If it can do that, then technology, technology will continue to move forward 
into this immersive space and the hollow deck thing that you see on Star Trek will attempt to become more and more of a reality. And uh, man, I wish I could be here in the year, what is this, 2020? Mm -hmm. I wish I could be here in 2120, 2220, 2320. You know, I love science fiction. We're like 500 years from now. 500 years from now is what, 2520? No, no, no. Let's go to the year 20,020. That's like, sometimes when I'm dreaming, I'm thinking like that. Did you guys ever see the movie AI? Artificial Intelligence? Yeah. Oh, you gotta see, uh -huh. you gotta see AI, man. You gotta see AI, Philip. You gotta see it because in AI, first of all, Steven Spielberg is on, he's on some other stuff. He knows something that we all should know. <laughs> His character <laughs> was a robot that wanted to become a human being and uh, was given some sense memory thing where it could actually feel and, and think and process, you know, artificial intelligence, AI. So somewhere in the movie, he, he goes into the bottom of the sea and he's, he is brought back to life like tens of thousands of years later by the new version of human consciousness, which is like our humanity lives in these little metallic uh, being things. And I'm looking at this, at this going, oh my God, he's figured this whole thing out. <laughs> He actually knows where we're headed as humans. Now, I don't know if it would take 20,000 years or 100,000 or 200,000 or a million years. Can you imagine humanity? What would it look like at the year 1 million? That is something that none of us will ever know. But when you think about it, there were people in the year one that had no idea what a car was or a plane or women walking around wearing pants, or men walking around wearing earrings, or something, you know. So every once in a while I do give myself the little guilty pleasure of being able to postulate uh, other versions of humanity other than the versions of humanity that, that we see from day to day, and that maybe there are no such things as ETs, extraterrestrials, maybe it's just us in the year 100 million, uh, and we figured out how to warp time finally, and we're coming back to visit ourselves. like. A museum. <laughs> so <laughs> you've just gone deep into the mind of Prince Charles. <laughs> I like the way. <laughs> yeah, that was very deep. Wow. <laughs> I was about we to say it's like a whole different person. A million years in humanity. <laughs> <laughs> so let's shift things back to the music industry, um, mm -hmm. and let's shift it back to hip hop specifically. What is your take on the importance of mental health today more so specifically um, with relation to hip hop, with all the things we've seen with Kanye and all these upcoming artists who seem to have divulged down a different path? What's your take on all of that? Each one of us needs to have some common sense, but that's not an easy statement. Um, just because my mother embedded me with a certain common sense doesn't mean that the person down the street's mom had common sense herself or could embed her child with common sense. So there has always been a strain of, uh, of questionable mental health in the music industry. Marvin Gaye with the drugs, him and his dad, you know, Marvin Gaye was shot by his father. Um, uh, Roger Troutman from the Zap was shot by his brother. 
there's always been a strain of, of pressure coming from the success and the fame. And I know because I felt it. I was on the stage in front of 30,000 people. Um, when 30,000 people are loving you every day, and in the case of Kanye, he's got you know, like millions of Twitter followers and stuff like that. It's hard to be a regular human being, especially if that journey began when you were 17 or 18. Because Puffy was about 18 or 19, Kanye was about 17 or 18 when he became famous. So he never had like a real human experience. He had an elevated human experience from a very young age. Those are the most dangerous ones and also our president. Our president is the same. He, a very elevated human experience from, from being a young person. Those are the dangerous ones in terms of mental health because there is, no, there is no grounding that was formed in the person before they ventured on their, their quest to communicate with millions and millions of people. With that said, um, the best that all of us can do is understand that humanity is not a singular experience. Humanity is a 360 degree experience. And there's whoever you are, there is an opposite of you that exists on the planet. And when we look at the music industry, a lot of that plays out from the creativity that we see in the industry. So the first thing that we want to do, like I said before, is at least listen to it and try to understand it ourselves. Um, if that music leads us somewhere that's not good for us, then we need to seek help, you know? And I don't know how to do that for anyone that doesn't want to seek help. Um, so I, I feel in many ways that, maybe it's because of my age, I feel in many ways that I'm just an observer um, and that there are many health, situ health crisis situations, mental health crisis situations that even professionals can't get a handle on. So we shouldn't beat ourselves up if we're not able to help someone else. So if you lose a friend to suicide, if um, you lose a friend to drugs, and if you feel guilty because you're, you're like, oh, if I, could, if I would have just said this, if I would have just taken him to, to that, don't do that to yourself because those journeys are um, those journeys are very focused journeys. And in many ways, those journeys cannot be interrupted. You can do your best to try to interrupt them, to try to lead them into to, to something that's more healthy for them. But in, in many cases, those people's journeys uh, will not be interrupted by you or anyone. And so I would say to those of us that, that have our health our mental health more in line to, to try to not beat ourselves up when we see somebody going off the rails. Try to be helpful, try to instruct, try to lead, and um, you know, don't drive yourself crazy if, if all of your efforts go to not. Um, I don't know if Kanye is crazy or what. I don't know what I'm looking at half the time. Um, and I don't know if our president's crazy. I don't know what I'm looking at half the time. So, me personally, I rely on my good common sense. And at the same time, I do realize that that's kind of a selfish understanding of my own humanity. 
because not all of us have the same good common sense as me. Um, so the best thing that I can do is when I'm interacting with other human beings, making sure that I'm listening to them, making sure that I'm hearing their perspective, making sure that I'm confident in my perspective and able to communicate it well without getting into a fight. Um, and at the end of the day, I love you because you're a human being. I hope you love me because I'm a human being. And uh, I hope that our interaction has brought some enlightenment to our meeting. And that's all I can ask. And I walk away and, you know, that's all I can ask. Can't ask for any, any more than that. So I hope that there are people around Kanye, yeah, uh, around Kanye that are telling him, yo, get it together. And if not, I can't do anything from Boston. <laughs> Go ahead, Shanika. True, true, true. No, I mean, I, those are really great points. Uh, I think that's like a really good mindset to put it in. Um, and kind of continuing with this topic, um, many young rappers such as Juice World, um, X, and Lil Peep have died very recently. So what kind of an impact do you think this has on hip hop as a genre and its audience since we are losing very talented young artists? I think that this began in the mid uh, the mid 80s, 1987, when we went from fight the power on the East Coast to F the police, F-U-C-K the police on the West Coast. And we had this battle about language in, uh, in the court system about, you know, free speech. And uh, eventually, um, Larry Flint, who was the publisher of Hustler magazine, he won a case saying that he could say whatever he wanted to say. He had the free speech to say whatever he wanted to say that filtered down to our industry, and our industry has become more coarse with language, and that coarse language has led to a more coarse lifestyle. And you get to the mid-90s, and the mid-90s, Suge Knight comes into the offices with guns and bats and turns the music industry from uh, a revenue-generating revenue industry into a, a lifestyle industry. And what was the lifestyle? The lifestyle was get my money. And... Get My Music is a very, very small voice in the music industry. Get My Money is a large voice. Um, that's why I'm at Berkeley. That's why I want to educate you guys. Because I want you guys to know that getting your money is extremely important. And that when you get your money, you're going to have the opportunity to turn around and say to everybody, well, you know why I did this? I became famous and I became successful because I want to elevate and I want to elevate the conversation above and beyond money. Because if you guys are not famous and not successful, then the lesser musically talented people that, that can exploit our industry because they've got tattoos on their faces and because they have fights on world star hip hop or whatever, those people will continue to influence your brothers and your sisters and the next generation of people that want to create music or entertainment or videos or whatever you want to call it. So I think, and I'm going to have to go to my old man stance on this one, I, I think the, the negative words and the negative imagery harms people. I think it harms young people because... For every hundred young people that sit down and watch some crazy thing, even if there's two of them that are like, well, that's what I want to be like. 
even if there's two, that's too, too, too many. Because if you multiply that by the hundreds of thousands of millions of people in this country, now you're up to like hundreds and of people who are just knuckleheads and eventually they'll be behind bars and then that um, that puts a burden on, a, on the, the, the prison system and so forth and so on. So you want people to be able to say what they want to say in a free speech world, in a free speech economy, in a free speech uh, nation. Um, but it would be good if the people that had free speech kind of knew that they were impacting children and that they were changing children's lives. And I think that that's reckless and irresponsible for any artist to think that they're not a role model. I think it's reckless and ir irresponsible for any artist to, to, to use profanity just because. If you're using profanity because it fucking makes sense, then that works for me. But if you're using profanity just to do it vicariously, that doesn't work for me. It, you're exploiting language just for the sake of. So a lot of young artists who are just hip-hop artists, they think that that's the way to get the cheese. That's the way to get the record company to pay attention to them because they use all this profanity. They don't even have any interesting lyrics. Like 40% of the lyrics is just profanity. I can't tell them not to do that. But I can empower you with tools that are as good or better at connecting with audiences and to give that power to you so that you can go forward and it'll be your job to turn around and influence our industry and to influence hip-hop so that we can empower people instead of destroying people. Yeah, I really like your point about empowerment. I think that that's something the music industry really needs. And I'm glad that you're teaching us, you know, how to be a positive impact in the music industry. That's really great. So on the topic of rappers, um, hip hop has been the most popular genre for these past couple of years. And we see this in the Billboard Hot 100's top 20 songs comprising mainly of this genre. So do you think hip hop is going to continue to be this dominant and how do you think it's going to evolve as a genre? My definition of hip hop right now is not just that somebody's rapping. It's really a sonic frequency thing. It's like, do you have 808s? Or 808 being an analogy for low frequency response, 30 cycles, 29 cycles, 28 cycles. Um, because I hear hip hop in Ariana Grande, I hear it in Taylor Swift, I hear it in uh, Justin Bieber. I hear it in Shawn Mendes, I hear it in Camila Cabello. So uh, pop music is so infused with hip hop these days that the dividing line is more of a, I think the dividing line on hip hop has, has reverted to a black white thing, honestly. Black music versus white music is kind of where this line is and whenever that line exists, certain artists are going to make more money and be able to disseminate more information and other artists will make less money and be unable to disseminate information. So how does that play out? When you're 18 years old, you've got tattoos, black or white, you'll be driven into to one of two lanes. The black guy is going to be driven into the hip-hop lane, the white artist is going to be driven into the pop lane. Not even by record companies anymore. It's just going to happen because social media is going to demand it of you because the people that are looking at you are saying, well, you should do this or you should do that. 
And even if you don't listen to them, what's going to happen is you'll eventually be out of the business. Eventually, nobody will be looking at your videos. So the people who that when the, all the videos are being looked at, those are the ones that are going to have success. Those are the ones that are going to go into the industry, and it's going to diverge to these two different paths. Now, what happens is at about the age of 35 or 40, there's only going to be a few of the 18-year-olders left, which you're seeing it right now. There's not too many Drakes, you know? There's like what? There's How old is Drake? Drake is 40-ish now, 38, something like that. So how many 38-year-old superstars we have? There's probably about a handful, like 5 to 10. You get even older than that. You get into your 40s. You got Adam Levine. Adam Levine is like 44 or something like that. How many Adam Levines do we have? The, the list is getting smaller and smaller. So this is about recording music. And so now if you go to hip-hop, I don't know anybody on the hip-hop side that is 44 that's cranking out records consistently right now. Everybody is 22, 23. So that's how it impacts the industry. It impacts the industry because you don't have a generational wealth anymore in hip-hop. You have this generation of 22-year-olds that thinks the 32-year-olds are too old, that thinks the 42-year-olds are ancient, that thinks the 52-year-olds need to just, like, die, that thinks the 62-year-olds never even existed. And it's like, I'm sitting here looking at the whole thing going, you're all in the same boat. I don't know where this division thing comes from, but it, it does exist. So um, some of it is the industry's carrots, the cheese, the come get this is creating the division. Some of it is just cultural competency. People don't even understand their own cultures. That helps to create the division. Some of it is uh, radio is still a major player, whether, whether anybody wants to think so or not. And radio still is very divisive um, in terms of stratifying music. The, the television, uh, Google, film, all of that stuff imprints us with ideas of what the white person can do, what the black person can do, what the Asian person can do, what the Native American person can do, so forth and so on. And even when we want to ignore it, for every one of us that ignores it, there's 10 or 15 people that are like, oh, okay, so that's what black people do. Oh, okay, that's what white people do. Oh, okay, that's what Asian people do. And we can't fight it. All we can do is try to become as successful as possible and then create our own film industry, our own music industry, you know, our own uh, a literary industry and if we can't become popular and successful then we will not be afforded the opportunity to influence the next generation so if it's not us who will it be and that's the question that all of you have to ask yourself if I don't fight to become the biggest best thing that I can be then who is gonna fight that hard to become the biggest and the best thing and what do they represent and how do they influence? And if you're comfortable with the answer that I can just chill and not have any responsibility, then life will be what it is. And if you're like, okay, then I gotta be about my, my wits. I gotta get up on this thing and make it happen. Now you're talking a very complex game that I think is very worthy of people that go to Berkeley College of Music and spend the kind of money that you spend. You know, take this thing over, grab the reins, control it, and start to direct it into better and better places.
Wow. Thank you so much for all of the insight that you've had um, with all of these questions and different topics that we've talked about. It, I feel like, makes a huge difference to hear it, um, being students, but also being active creators in the industry that are looking to form some sort of semblance of where and what we're going to do. Um, so now we're going to move on to something we've called a speed round. Uh, essentially, we're just going to ask you a bunch of questions, and your goal is to answer them as quickly as possible. Cool. Uh, so I'm going to start off. If you could do it all again in the music industry, what would you do differently, if anything? Uh, learn learn how to DJ. I, cool. I, I still can't um, DJ. <laughs> I still can't spin turntables, <laughs> uh, but but that, but I think it's pretty powerful. I like that one. Awesome. Second question: Will you pass Shanika and I with A's in two two six? I have no idea because I don't even pay attention to the names. I just look at the work. Ooh, <laughs> Ooh I like that. <laughs> I like that. All right. Um, if you had to swear at someone, what's your go-to word? Oh, F-U-C-K in a heartbeat. It's an adjective. It's a noun. It's a verb. It's an adverb. It's like, come on. It's an article. <laughs> F-U-C-K is the word. What? <laughs> solid. So, okay. Um, what's your favorite brand to wear? Uh, I don't look at it like that, but probably Nike. I like Nike stuff. I have some Nike socks on right now that feel real comfortable. They do have great socks. Yeah, yeah. they do. Are you a waffles or pancakes kind of person? Uh, pancakes. Pancakes? Any specific kind of pancake? Nah, making myself from scratch, from flour, egg. Mm. Nice. nice. Love them like Very that. Very cool. Yeah. Are you a morning person or a night owl? Oh, I can't do the morning at all. When you guys see me at 9 a.m., I am struggling. <laughs> I was about to say, wait, what? <laughs> That's so I, surprising. I, I hate the morning. I'm a night out. I don't go to bed until 4 a.m. When you see me at 9 a.m., really when wow. you see me at 9 a.m., wow. I am half asleep. I swear to God. Because I'm like, every class I've taken with him is at 9 a.m. And he's always there at like 8.40. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. And I'm lit too, right? So that comes from being a saxophone player, practicing, uh, Drunk, high, sleepy, and looking at like Charlie Parker transcriptions. <clears throat> I was like, if I can do this drunk, high, and sleepy, I'm going to be amazing if I'm straight. So, you know, three hours of sleep, and I, as long as I'm straight, I'm good. I got energy. I can do whatever I need to do. <laughs> there y'all have it. The secret to 9 a.m. <laughs> That's the secret. Yep. Okay. Um, what's your favorite genre to listen to? That's a complicated question, but... Uh, or go-to. Go-to genre. Classical. No drums. No, oh, okay. No drums. No drums. I don't even like opera. I like I like orchestral music. Wow. Or piano, like Chopin. Yeah. So it's either going to be Chopin, Beethoven, or Mozart. Nice. Right, cool. Good choices. What's an instrument that you want to learn next? Uh, probably the harpeggi. Stevie Wonder plays one right now. It's a, like a stringed instrument. It's like chromatic, but it's also laid out in the circle of fifths. It's a weird instrument. Look it up. Harpeggi. H-A-R-P-E-G-G-I. 
All right, we'll look it up. If there was one new artist that we'd listen to, who would it be? A new artist that people should listen to? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, uh, Travis Scott. I don't know if people consider him new because he's been around for a minute. But I think Travis Scott is... Oh, and... Oh, no, I know who it is. YBN Corday. YBN Corday, without a doubt. Mm. Oh. Without a doubt. All right. All right. Awesome. What's your favorite movie of all time? Uh... A movie that I can watch over and over and over again is Singing in the Rain, Gene Kelly. Ooh, good choice. Interesting. What's the last country you visited? I think it was South Africa. Yeah, it was Africa and uh, specifically South Africa. Yeah. Ooh, that's a cool place. So lastly, what's your favorite alcoholic drink? Scotch. McAllen's 18. Mm. McAllen's 18. Mm. I got Phil, that from my my mom. It. My mom was a, my my mom was a scotch drinker. So, I I inherited I oh, inherited okay. it from her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, everybody. I think that's it for today. So, thank you so much Prince Charles Alexander for joining us here at the Pavilion on Air. It was such a big pleasure having you here. Also, thanks a lot to everyone who tuned in. This is our very first episode of The Pavilion on Air, and we really hope you liked it. Make sure to stay tuned for more great content about arts and the music industry from The Pavilion. Also, check out The Pavilion Live on YouTube, where we broadcast performances of original content. If you enjoyed the show, follow us on Instagram under The Pavilion Live. Stay cool, and see you soon.